I want you to meet Doug. And sometimes Doug says things like this. Are we doing something because we've always done it? Or does the thing do what it's supposed to do? And that's a really good question. So think about your own life, you know, your work, your family and friends. Are you doing something because you've always done it? Or does that thing that you're doing do what it's supposed to do? So said another way, maybe the things we're currently doing aren't doing what we need them to do. So maybe your family isn't actually connecting on that vacation. Maybe you're just going through the motions. Maybe your company isn't actually serving customers well because their needs have changed. Maybe our process for getting big public input on a project isn't getting the right kind of input we need. Or, or maybe the ways that your church has always done something isn't shaping people the way you might like. It could be anything. At RCLI, these are the kinds of questions that we like to think about. How can we, the people of God, ask good questions and pursue possibility? How do we partner with God in what he's up to in our midst? How's it going? I'm Blaine Lay, and you're listening to Vivid. The goal on the show is to help Christian leaders see clearly. One quick note before we jump in, Vivid is powered by RCLI, that's the Richmond Christian Leadership Initiative, and we want to see Richmond thrive as an organization. One thing we do, we run a leadership program that helps emerging leaders weave their faith into what they do for the good of their neighbor and the glory of God. So we're looking for Christian professionals in their mid-20s to their early 40s, and we're accepting applications through May 26th. So if you're like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting, more details are available on our website at rcliweb.org. Everything about the program, how you can apply, all those good things are available on our website. That's rcliweb.org. All right, so this is episode one of season two. If this was a TV show, you know, season two is about the show finding itself, really getting to know the characters, those kinds of things. So thanks for joining us. Our guest today on the show is my guy, Doug Paul. Doug has a great head of hair that I'm jealous of, but that's that's not really saying much. I don't have much hair, so if you have hair, I'm probably jealous of you. Doug works as an innovation strategist. He helps lead the team at Catapult. He's an elder and pastor at East End Fellowship right here in Richmond. He's married to Elizabeth. They've got three kids and a dog that's bigger than most men. And Doug wrote a book in 2020 called Ready or Not, Kingdom Innovation for a Brave New World. And so I wanted to have a conversation with Doug about innovation, what that means for the church. A lot of Doug's work is church-based, but the implications of his thinking expand beyond that. So our conversation meandered in the best way possible from screen addiction to the origins of Alcoholics Anonymous, and there are even some half-baked ideas in there at the end. So let's jump in with Doug Paul. My name is Blaine Lay, and you're listening to Vivid. Doug Paul, good to see you, my friend. Good to hear you. Say hello to the people. Hello to the people. It's good to see you, Blaine. <laughs> good to see you, man. Thank you for joining me for a conversation. You, you've done a lot of things. You are a man of the book. You're a pastor. You've got a real passion for discipleship. You've also written a book about innovation. I've read it. It's really helpful. And I wonder if you'd start just by defining what you mean when you talk about innovation. Could you demystify it for us a little bit? Yeah, you know, when I lead teams through a process for innovation and then, you know, the book is about, it's not just innovation, the way we define it is kingdom innovation. And there are three core components to it. 
Uh, one is it's new. Second is it works. And third, it brings glory to Jesus. And so it's new. That doesn't mean it has to be like, it's never anything like it has existed before. I think sometimes we think innovation and we're like Edison and the light bulb. There wasn't a light bulb and now there is. Right. I think some of the, some of the most important social innovations in history are actually tweaks of something that already existed. The second thing it works, look, it's great if it looks good in your head or if it looks good on a whiteboard or you've just been dreaming about it, but it's not an innovation unless it works. It's got to work in real time. And then thirdly, it brings glory to Jesus. It's something can be a social innovation and it doesn't have to be about Jesus, but for kingdom innovation, Jesus has to be the center of the story. We're not the center of the story. The innovation isn't the center of the story. Jesus is Jesus is the center. And so that those are the three core components for the stuff that I get to work on. Is that kind of thinking, can you do kingdom innovation that's not specifically church-based? Like you could do something that's new and something that works that isn't explicitly mentioning Jesus by name. The answer is no. I mean... Because I actually think this is really, this is an important point, is the thing that that we know from Jesus, just by reading the Sermon on the Mount, is that your motivation matters. And I I would argue that the reason that you do something is one of the most important aspects of whether or not it's of the kingdom. And so Bach writing a concerto, you know, it's it's just a piece of music. Is it glorifying to Jesus if it doesn't say Jesus's name? Hmm. Yes, because Bach meant it to be glorifying to Jesus. That was the motivation that he brought to it. And so whether you are a socialpreneur, whether you are in government, whatever sector you find yourself in, and you're trying things out, if, if it's trying to bring about human flourishing, and your motivation for doing it is in alignment with the kingdom and your heart is in alignment with what the king is up to, then yeah, it's bringing glory to Jesus. Yeah. As you think about this idea of, of doing new things and doing things that are new, doing things that work and things that glorify Jesus, how has COVID in any way shifted the ways that you've thought about that? Or is it just like, hey, this just accelerated things that you were already seeing? Yeah, I think COVID is an accelerant. I think COVID has done two things. It's accelerated the macro trends that were already happening. And it's been a revealer. It's revealed things that were to a certain degree hidden. And it has, it's turned on the lights on some things that either were there in plain view and we weren't willing to look at, or were hidden and the bright lights have come on and we're like, whoa, hello, that's, that's right there. Hmm. Is there a, a favorite story or two from the book that illustrates what you're talking about? Could you share maybe your favorite story from the book? My favorite story from the book, man. Um, I could probably share like a story that's like my, a story that's today's story that might be my favorite. Yeah. I think... I, I think there is something profound to me about Sunday school. I don't, I don't know why it has stuck with me, but Sunday school became obsolete almost overnight. So it, it started as the most revolutionary social movement of the 18th century because it was giving kids who didn't know how to read and were never going to have any kind of social or economic advancement an opportunity that they would never have. It, that's was it that's a, why was Sunday it a, school started. Was it a tool for literacy early in its yeah. inception. I mean, 
essentially you have all these kids in factories and urban centers as seven-year-olds and they were working 80, 90 hours a week and they were never going to learn how to read and they were always going to live in the slums and the only day they had off was Sunday. And so Sunday school was started because it was a school for Sundays for poor kids who the only advancement they were ever possibly going to get was through education and they believe education was a silver bullet Hmm. and man that sounds familiar doesn't it and the 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 thing that ultimately flipped in the late 1870s was there was education reform where first in uh, great britain and then finally in the united states education reform happened so that it was mandated that kids had to go to school public education started and overnight sunday school became obsolete and yet how many churches still have Sunday school today? And it just looks nothing like why it was started or for the reasons that it was started. So are you saying, are you saying do away with Sunday school, Doug? I love Sunday school. I'm not here to, to stand on Sunday school corner. We are still looking at something that exists that looks nothing like why it was started. And the need for why that thing was started is still just as important. There are still poor kids who need a good education and will not advance out of where it is, the circumstances that they find themselves. I'm glad we have Sunday school, but like, why, what, what is the church doing? But it could be that the problem that it was initially created to solve, which was literacy for low-income children. Now, I think Sunday school solves a question around how do we form our people? When I was in my like teens and twenties, Sunday school was really helpful for me because I would go and I would just eat up all the good learning. But maybe your point is that there's still that the, the the question of how do you care for kids that are at risk? The church can still have a role there. And yes, is that is that the point? The well, point I get, right? I would I would make two points. Number one, there are all of these at risk kids who 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 are still there, and they're in public school. But is public school working for them? And it's not. So what? is going to happen to them when they graduate or never graduate. We've been asking those questions for 300 years now. That's why Sunday school started. The second one is Sunday school as it is currently built now, does it work? Like, does it actually do what it is designed to do? And if Sunday school is designed to teach kids like biblical literacy or knowledge, sure, then it works for that. But do we want it to do more than that? Like, is it meant to actually shape the spiritual lives of kids? And then obviously, like a lot of parents are in in Sunday school as well. I think we we just have to ask, are we doing something because we've always done it? Or does the thing do what it's supposed to do? I think there perhaps is an assumption. It relates to Sunday school, but I think more generally is just the sense that information alone creates transformation. It's necessary. You need it. But that doesn't mean that when you leave the room your behavior will necessarily change just because you stand in a room and talk at someone does not mean that you they have been shaped what you're naming is something called i mean there's a famous book that's written about this phenomenon called descartes error it's that to know about something is to know something and that's not that's not actually true and here's the thing if that were true then we wouldn't need jesus if knowing about God, if just having the information about God was enough to change me from the inside out, then there was no need for Jesus to come. 
this is a really big challenge in the church. We become addicted to the hit of a new way of thinking about something within the church, thinking that like the hit is going to change us. Or if I just get enough of the right information, it's like a, a magical combination in the sky that it'll click. And then like, I will change. But one, that's not what the scripture says at all. And two, that's the first heresy of the church. That's Gnosticism. That, that is that there's special knowledge that I can attain that is somehow going to change me. No, the change agent, well, that's, that's God. God is the change agent. You don't need to know about God for the sake of knowing about him. You need to know him, be like actually be experiencing God. Yeah. If you want to learn how to shoot a basketball, you can read about it. But that doesn't mean you know how to do it. And just because you get out there and try to do it, you're going to need help from the outside, from someone that knows how to do it and can actually make it possible for you. It's not a perfect metaphor for what you're describing. But it's really good, though, because if it's the same kind of metaphor where how do how do we train doctors? Mm. Like, how does someone become a doctor? There's a lot of information involved. There are textbooks, loads of textbooks that you're going to have to learn. But no one is thinking just because a doctor has read a load of textbooks that they have any right to hold a scalpel and perform open heart surgery. There's a lot of apprenticeship that goes into that. You're, you're going to start with a frog, then you're going to have a scalpel and you're going to go after a pig. Eventually, you're going to get to a human cadaver. And then finally, you're going to apprentice under a master surgeon long before you ever get a scalpel in your hand. Anywhere near me for open heart surgery. And yet in the church, we treat change as if like, look, just read some books, learn some theology, know about the stuff. And uh, thankfully, that's not how we train our doctors, but that is how we train our people. Yeah. And to jump off the doctor metaphor, there's also, I'll call it a community of practice, where when you go into residency, you have some of the classroom teaching, but you're actually out with patients, but you're also with peers. And deep sigh, I mean... We live in a world that's increasingly fragmented where young people, they're connected, but they're not connected. And, you know, decline in institutions and all these sort of um, organizations and places that would shape people are less present than they once were. And so how do we form a community of practice that is shaping people? That's obviously the role of the church. Well, let me flip it on you. I, I couldn't agree more that it's getting increasingly difficult to find committed followers of Jesus who will journey together through this, just the difficulties of, in some ways, like growing up. But when we say growing up, I mean, in your twenties and thirties, like mm. it's a new, it's a new kind of growing up. I'm, I'm 39. I'm about to turn 40. So I can, I can talk about this in the rear view mirror. Like, how does that happen? Like in specifically, let's talk about Richmond. Like how does that happen in Richmond? Say the question again or say the question. How do we form people? How do we create a community of practice for people Ooh. in their twenties and thirties to help them grow into who God created them to be? Yeah. I mean, I was looking at some data this week. 70% of young adults say that depression and anxiety is a major problem. One in three young adults feel cared for by those around them. 32% say someone believes in me. I want them to know stuff, but what if we just need to eat meals together and, and be together in embodied real-time ways? To me, it feels like 
huge opportunity, right? Uh, you know, it's it's not easy to do, particularly in a world where people are busy and they have less margin. And so maybe one of the opportunities is do less, create more margin in your life, create space for other people, right? That's the first place my head goes. I'll rattle off a couple of these because I was looking at some data this week. Number one, social trust has declined. One in five people in one party think people in the other party are evil. 17% of Americans are proud of the way things are going. Social trust, it's declining. Secondly, the church is just less central. For the first time in the U.S., less than half people, 47%, are now attending a religious service. And so the centrality of the church and the institution of the church has declined. And so you can't flip a switch and change trust. And you can't just say, oh, now we're all going to rally around the institutions that form us, but you can't invite somebody over for dinner. Or you can show up to a place on a Sunday with a small group of people or to a small group on Thursday night for a couple hours, wherever it may be. What does it look like to, to commit to other people relationally rather than you need to read a book or here's a an article to read? Do you know what I mean? You are talking in some ways about a fundamental principle of Christianity that I think is being, like we talk about COVID being accelerant, but I also think this is like a place where COVID is being a revealer, where we're we're shining the light on something that's been there, but like we didn't really see. There is a loneliness epidemic. Yes. People need to look at you and be able to say this. I know you. Mm. I like you. I love you. And when, when someone hears that, they need to believe you. Right. And there are so many people that they are not sure that anyone would say that about them. Right. And that that is an expression of the kind of loneliness that we're feeling. Not, not only has that been revealed in COVID, I think it's been accelerated because one, I mean, obviously there's the like isolation that we've had going in and out of lockdown. But two, the average American spends 5.4 hours looking at their phone every day. Ooh. The average American will spend, over the course of the year, they will scroll the length of a walk all the way up Mount Everest and all the way down. And so the more time you spend on your phone, the more anxiety a person has. And so it's time we be honest about this, this, the level of screen addiction that we have right now and how that is making us not just unhappier, but it's isolating us more. And it is the largest contributing factor to the loneliness that people in their 20s and 30s feel. Mm. Yeah. Which to me, that's an opportunity for the church. This is where the church should have some really freaking good news. We know that your phones aren't good for you, but we want to diversify the ways that you can connect with churches. How do we do ministry in a world where everyone is on their phone? Should you not do that at all? Should you do it with wisdom? How do you think about being faithful in a digital world? Is, is there a way to do it in a healthy way? The answer is yes for some and no for others. It's it's not different than alcohol. You've got denominations that are dry. You've got denominations that are like moderation is key. And then you have denominations or tribes that are like, we are going to use alcohol to advance the kingdom of God. Hmm. Th- those are three different options that I think we have as the people of God. But the problem is that there's a fourth one. And it's to not do anything and think uncritically. And that is what virtually every church has been doing 
since the advent of the smartphone in 2008 is we've just absorbed it. It's washed over us. And now is the time to really think critically about how are we going to faithfully engage in a world that has smartphones. For some, it's going to be, we are going to be Luddites. And that's not bad or good. That's what they feel the Lord is calling them to. And there are some that are going to be like, no, no, no. Moderation is key. We're going to use it and we're going to live in the tension of it. And there are going to be practices we use to disengage and practices we use to engage. And we're going to faithfully live into the tension. And there are going to be some that are going to give themselves fully to it. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean that in a like, they're going to think critically about how they give themselves to the missional engagement of the kingdom through digital technology. Yeah, that's really good. I'm going to jump back a little bit as we talk about this idea of, of innovation. There are all different kinds of ways that we as people of faith can participate in the renewal of all things. But I think some people, when you talk about creativity or innovation, they check out and they're like, oh, that's not for me. Do you have any advice for folks that discount themselves and say, that's not me? When you say that, you are naming one of the biggest myths around innovation. We're saying that we're kind of like, hey, some people have the gene, like they have an extra chromosome or something. We're saying that some people have it and I don't have it. But what that doesn't see is that some of the most important innovations that have happened weren't necessarily from people who are trying to innovate. They just found themselves in a situation where they had to innovate. There was something that was wrong in the world and they had to step into the gap or there was something that was wrong in them and they, they, they had to fix that problem. So when we think about where did Alcoholics Anonymous come from? It wasn't because Bill Wilson was trying to change the world. It was because Bill Wilson was just trying to stop drinking. And 135 million people later, we stand here in the wake of all the transformation that Alcoholics Anonymous has brought. But Bill Wilson wasn't trying to be an innovator. He just wanted to stop drinking. That's how we need to start thinking about it. Sometimes we think about it like it's this grand sweeping pioneering thing. Necessity is the mother of invention. What's standing right in front of you that needs to be different? That's right. It could also be small and practical. It doesn't have to be earth shattering. Maybe you just have a backyard picnic with a neighbor. Yeah. Right? Like, I, I, I mean, we, we know this because the scriptures say that like, let's not despise the day of small beginnings. Hmm. We're just doing things because we're just being faithful to what God is saying. And it, it becomes something bigger. There was a time a couple of decades ago when a couple of moms were feeling really, really lonely because they had toddlers and toddlers by virtue of nap schedules and all this stuff make you feel very isolated. And so they started to meet together at specific times where they could connect with one another and they could talk about life, what they were learning as young moms and just try to feel a little bit normal before they got thrown up on again. <laughs> and it was just four or five moms that were doing that. And the word began to spread about the kind of life that these people were experiencing. And eventually that thing turned into mops. Eventually that became mother of preschoolers, which became this really big phenomenon in like the 1990s and the early aughts. But that's not where it started. It was a couple of moms who were just tired of feeling lonely. Yeah, I think there's something about faithfulness and sensitivity to a need in your life and responding and even a little bit of wonder of saying, well, how could this be different? I was buying some mustard at the grocery store the other day and I was trying to find the mustard 
And I'm walking, looking at the shelves, and I'm just like, I need some mustard. Where is the mustard? And I looked up, and I thought, oh, gosh, there are aisles with labeled, you know, it tells you where the things are. In my life, often, I'm just like doing the next thing rather than lifting my eyes up and saying, Lord, what do you have for me? What is a new thing that you want me to look at, whether it's big and grand or small and practical? But I just had this moment in the grocery store. I was like, huh. I spend a lot of my days just walking along, looking at the shelves, where I, what I think God is saying, no, lift your eyes up a little bit, look to me, and and be faithful, and then go find the mustard. In a world where you can map a thunderstorm in the supercomputer in your pocket, you don't go out and look at the sky. You're like, oh man, is it going to rain tonight? I don't know. Let me pull out my little supercomputer. Beep, pop, pop, pop. We don't go outside and look at the sky anymore. And so how do we recover a sense of wonder, a sense of playfulness, and just lifting your eyes up and saying, all right, God, what do you have? And where do you want me to go? It's good. Are you, are you saying that up until last week, didn't know that grocery store aisles were labeled? <laughs> well, I had this moment. I mean, I knew it, but I was walking around. I was like, oh, wait a second. You know what? They've got these signs up there. Here's a fun tip for everybody that you made me think of. I never knew this until probably like three months ago. Whenever I go to get gas, I never, I can never remember which side of the tank my gas is on. And if you look at your gas dial, there's an arrow, arrow or there's like a little, a little gas icon. The side that that is on is the side that the, that the, that the gas cap is on in your car. I didn't know that. It was revelatory for me. Let, let me tell you another one. And I think, were you the one who told me about the toasters? Uh, I think so. That <laughs> changed it? my life, Blaine Lay. What was it like, you thought it Tell tell the people, what was it? You thought that the number was the toastiness? Is that what it was? Yes. I thought the number, I for those, I think there are a lot of people out there like me, Blaine. I don't think I knew Who did not it. know that on the toaster, the numbers are minutes, not a continuum of toastiness. Yeah. I always thought that, you know, all the way, it was, it was just, it's how toasty you want it, not how long it's going to be in there. It blew my mind when you told me that. Can I, uh. I would, I would, I'm not going to push back. I'm going to build on it. I would argue that the, the, the number of minutes is also the toastiness. So maybe you were both right. It is, but it's a different, it's a different <laughs> rubric for understanding right. what's happening. Yes. yes. And I, I feel like this should be a recurring segment on this yeah. podcast. What? Just the thing, the things that I didn't know that I now know. Basic things we're learning in life. It's good. We, we're, we're all, we're all on a journey. I, I don't think I was the one that, tell you, that told you that for the record. I think you learned it from somebody else. So if somebody's listening and they're like, it wasn't Blaine, it was me, then I, I give that person credit for whoever they were. But in my mind and heart, it'll always be you. Yeah, nice. I'll accept that. I want to wrap with, uh, as you survey the landscape in your work, are there places and pockets where you're seeing some promise where you're like, oh, these people, this church, this organization are doing some really interesting work? The answer is yes, but I think we're at a critical juncture. I think Christians right now are at a possible inflection point. So I, I think you said possible. Interesting. Possible. The, the predominant amount of my work is with pastors, network leaders, and denominational leaders that work with churches. Yeah, yeah. The majority of my work, let's say 85%, is like very church-based. Mm-hmm. There's definitely been a shaking in the spiritual psyche of most pastors in the last year in what way so a a stat that most people probably wouldn't know is that 70 percent of pastors in the last year have looked for another job that isn't pastoring 
Yeah. It's hard to describe how difficult being a pastor is just in general. And then you throw COVID mm. and all the other stuff that's happened, be it elections or social upheaval in the last year. And the, in some ways, like the kind of a, like emotional abuse that they've taken. And they're like, you know what? It's not worth it. Yep. It's really not worth it. And so they're look, they're actively looking. But at the same time, for, for the ones who are, are, are actually recommitting to this spiritual family that God has entrusted to them, they're realizing that the maturity levels of the people in their church is not what they thought it was. And that the forms that they've been using in their churches to disciple people are not doing what they thought they were. And there has been a real shaking and an awakening of, we need to actually try some things to do what the Great Commission promises, like to make disciples who make disciples. Like that we're actually delivering that at the local church level. Some of the stuff that we've been talking about, you know, in this episode. And I think the possible inflection point is I'm watching leaders press into that mm. and really want to see that change. But I think by the fall, there's a there's an opportunity where enough things could go back to normal that they stop pressing in. And so that's why I'm saying it could be an inflection point, one that gives me like great hope. But at the same time, we're all fatigued and we're all tired and we, we're tired of being in our basements and recording things, you right. know? We want to be in different places and we want to be outside with the people hugging, crying, kissing, whatever. And pastors are no different. And so I'm, I'm wondering like, will they have the stamina to keep pressing into what it is that it seems to be God is doing, what's trying to happen hmm. right now? Um, Bob Buford has this great line about like, look for things that are trying to happen. And I think that's trying to happen right now, but there's also a great longing for things to return back to normal. It's almost like when you plant a flower bed, there's the green shoots that come up. Where are there places that are green shoots that we can water that may bear some fruit on down the line? Because those things can also easily be uprooted very quickly. And so how do you nourish the new which isn't isn't always necessarily easy what are some things in the old normal that can change for good reason and what's what's got up to along the way what's one thing you're looking forward to doug paul in the next mm, six months to a year i'm looking forward to airplanes <laughs> that's i didn't what is it about airplanes so i'm an introvert and I, I believe you're an introvert as well, Blaine. Yeah, I'm... I'm, I'm you're a well-adapted introvert. I'm not. It's like a not. bell curve. It's a bell curve. I'm a little bit over there, but I can play the role of an extrovert when I need yeah, to. Yeah, you're, and you're well-adapted in that way. Like, I've never had your kind of social graces. Um, and so there's something about... Usually when I travel for work, I'm alone. Mm -hmm. And so there's just something about jumping on a plane and being lost in my thoughts and, and disconnected from Wi-Fi that is quite freeing for me. So what you're saying is it's almost like you're climbing into a, a human scale sound machine situation. Because the, the white noise in an airplane, I know that you're a Bill Simmons fan who's a, a sports writer that runs the ringer. And he, ha he had this concept a while back. He, they called them half-baked ideas. And one of them was, it was basically a service. Because he got so much work done on an airplane, the idea was, what if there was just a large airplane that didn't go anywhere, but you had to go, you had to go through security and then you get in with a bunch of other people and you're and you can't get out for like two hours because it was so because he was so productive maybe maybe that's maybe that's the green shoot for you doug that you could nourish is to take that idea and run with it 
That's a that is a half baked <laughs> idea. There's all kinds of reasons why it's terrible, but it's a, it's it's. I'm gonna say that's a you have an airplane mode on your phone <laughs> that I could employ at any time. Yes, yes, cool. Well, Doug, thank you, thank you so much for your time today. It was great, great catching up, picking your brain a little bit. I'm thankful for your your contribution as we think about how can we be people that do new things, even if they're small things that work and things that glorify Jesus. So appreciate you, man. Amen. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Big thanks to Doug for joining us. His book is called Ready or Not, Kingdom Innovation for a Brave New World. Are you a Christian in the early or the middle of your career? Are you interested in weaving your faith into what you do to serve your neighbor and glorify God? If so, you might consider applying for our CLI's leadership program. We're accepting applications until May 26th. Everything you need to know is on our website at rcliweb.org. And that's it. My name is Blaine Lay. The show is Vivid. Thanks for listening.